And if you turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 from verse 27. If you, have, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are plenty at the back in, and uh, the, the, the Green Church Bibles. And if you have a Green Church Bible, uh, or as I found out this week, a Bible that has the same page numbers as the church, uh, Green Church Bibles, which is actually quite a few Bibles, it's page 1012. Uh, and if you have a large print Bible, uh, 1570. Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on the villages, onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word. And I've called this message the identity, mission, and call of the Messiah. It was quite amusing uh, this morning uh, when people were coming into church uh, because we've had quite a lot of new people come to church over this last year. And so they had no idea that we were going to be decorating the church Uh, for Holiday Bible Club. And I was at the back, and a number of people said, what on earth is going on? And one person even said, is this something to do with Tim's sermon? (laughs) I said, well, I don't know what Tim's going to say, but I'm pretty sure the jungle's not in it. There's a tiger, but there might be a lion in the sermon, but no tigers. Um, No, this is for the the Holiday Bible Club. Uh, I'd love to say that my uh, theme is all around the decorations, which... It's not. The decorations, by the way, if you're wondering, is because the the theme of the club is explorers. Uh, But what we are exploring at Holiday Club is Mark's gospel. 
Uh, And so, although I haven't got the jungle in the sermon, uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And because we are uh, speaking through this Gospel over this week in Holiday Club, I thought it would be good and appropriate that we look at what is really the central point and central part of the Gospel of Mark, which we find in these verses in chapter 8. Uh, Mark's gospel is really about showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is how Mark begins his gospel. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, we read the beginning of the gospel, the good news, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what Mark does is from there, he shows us through his gospel that Jesus, this man who has come and lived on the earth, is no ordinary man. He is the Messiah. That is the chosen king that God has sent to save his people and bring in his kingdom. And he is the son of God. He is God with us. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And up to chapter 8, as, we've, as Mark goes uh, up to this central point, uh, he has been showing us the, the words and the works of Jesus to show us that he really is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he claims that he is. Uh, We see through uh, Mark chapters 1 to 8, Jesus doing all sorts of amazing things. Uh, He he teaches with an authority that nobody else has. Uh, Jesus uh, calms the storm, has control over nature. He heals the sick. People come from all over the land to Jesus to be healed by him. He even raises the dead when he raises Jairus' daughter. Jesus casts out demons and they obey his voice. And actually, crucially, it might not seem the most amazing of miracles, but it is uh, a key miracle. He forgives sins, something which in Mark chapter 2 we read that only God can do. Jesus does all of these things. And then we come to chapter 8, and I didn't read this, but in chapter 8, verse 22, uh, down to verse 26, there is a a healing of a man who is blind at Bethsaida. And in this healing, it's interesting because Jesus heals him in two stages. He touches his eyes, and he's healed in part, and then he sees a little bit, and then Jesus touches him again, and he sees fully. And what's interesting about this miracle is that it's not there because Jesus has messed up the first part. Jesus is uh, completely able and has shown he's able to heal the blind completely. The two-part miracle is an enacted parable that shows us what's been going on in Mark so far. People see Jesus, they see what he does, and they kind of can see who he is, but they don't quite get it. But here in chapter 8, for the first time, really, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, gets it. He is the Messiah. He understands who Jesus is. But then we're going to go on to see, as Jesus declares what his mission is, that they don't completely understand why Jesus has come. They are still to fully see that. And when we read in Acts, we see there that Peter completely gets it. He completely sees And so what I want us to understand tonight is that we need to see clearly who Jesus is. We need to see clearly what the reason was that he came for us, and we need to see clearly what it means to be his follower. 
Now, many of us here this evening are Christians, no doubt. You may know everything I... Well, you don't know everything I'm going to say, but you may know uh, afterwards uh, the truths that I'm about to proclaim. But these truths about Jesus lead us to worship Jesus, don't they? These truths about Jesus are wonderful. And when we hear again, yes, he is the Messiah, it should cause us to worship him. And this week, as we declare this to our community in Pelsall, if we're helping at the Holiday Club uh, by actually being here, it should inspire us to say, yes, I want to tell these people that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you're not able to be here uh, this week physically, it should cause you to pray, please, Lord, may those children and those families see clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. That's where we're going uh, in Mark chapter 8 uh, today. So the first thing we see then from verse 27 to 30 is the identity of the Messiah. So Jesus and his disciples uh, move on from where the blind man was healed, and they're uh, going around the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking, Jesus is conversing with his disciples. And he asked them this question. Notice it in verse 27. Who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? He's asking them, you know, people have seen uh, the words and works of what Jesus has been doing over this time, what are they saying about me, he asked them. He's getting them to think. It gets us to think, doesn't it? And in verse 28, we read, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. These are various ideas that people have about who Jesus is. So some thought, this is John the Baptist, Interestingly, back in uh, earlier on in Mark's gospel, this was exactly what King Herod thought. King Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. King Herod had been forced to behead him because of a foolish promise he made uh, to his wife, who hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist had spoken out against their adulterous marriage. But Herod felt terrible about beheading John the Baptist. He liked to go and listen to John the Baptist. And when Herod heard about what Jesus was doing, he was terrified that this might be John the Baptist coming back from the dead to haunt him, if you like, because he felt so bad about beheading him. Others thought the same thing. Maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead and he's doing these things. Others thought it was Elijah. In the book of Malachi, we read there that Elijah was promised to come as a forerunner of the Messiah. And many people would would think, well, we don't believe this is the Messiah, but perhaps it's Elijah. We learn in other places in the Gospels that John the Baptist himself is the Elijah that was to come. Jesus wasn't Elijah. And still others, we read, one of the prophets Apparently, many people thought at the time that Jeremiah might come back or uh, one of the others to to proclaim uh, God's word again among the people. Lots of ideas that people had about who Jesus was. And don't we see the same thing today? People have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is. Not many people think he's John the Baptist or Elijah today, but many people think he's a prophet. Now, of course, Jesus is a prophet, but that's not all he is. Many people think that. Many people think that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, but nothing more. Some people think he was a revolutionary. Some people hate him and denigrate him in how they speak. They say he's nothing. He's just just a mere man who is an annoyance because people now worship him. 
People have all sorts of ideas about Jesus and who he is. But the key question really isn't, what do the crowds say? The key question is in verse 29. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? In our lives, we uh, have questions asked of us uh, that can be life-transforming when we answer them. Uh, For example, uh, will you marry me? It's a big question, isn't it? When you answer that question, the course of your life goes in different directions depending on your answer, doesn't it? Uh, Do you want to complete or exchange contracts on this house? It's a big decision, isn't it? Transforms your life potentially. Do you want to accept this job or this contract? What you say can alter the course of your life for a long time to come. We are asked many questions in our lives that are important, but let me say this. None is as important as this question in verse 29. Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Forget about what everyone else might think. Who do you say I am? And this is the most important question you will ever be asked because the whole of your eternity hinges on your answer to this question. Essentially, this is what you are going to get asked on the day of judgment. Who do you say Jesus is? What is your response to Jesus? And Peter gives the only answer that is right. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. He sees clearly. He sees clearly. And my question for you this evening is, do you see clearly? Maybe you've never read Mark's gospel. I encourage you to to do that. But some of you here know some of those stories you've heard. And if you've been here any length of time, you would have heard many times of the amazing words and works of Jesus Christ. You've seen him and read of him healing the sick and calming the storm and raising the dead and forgiving sins and casting out demons. And you see these things in his word. And as you see them, how do you answer this question? Who do you say I am? Do you see that he's the Messiah? Do you see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you see that clearly? Because if you do not answer, you are the Messiah. If you think he's anyone else, you haven't seen And on the day of judgment, when we are asked that question, unless you are able to say, he is the Messiah, yes, I believe that, then you are an eternity away from being with God. You suffer his wrath forever. If you don't see clearly, Jesus is the Messiah. The identity of Jesus is that he is the Messiah. Or in terms of the question on the screen, the identity of the Messiah is Jesus. Well, in verse 30, we read there, strangely it may seem, uh, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Well, the reason for this is because at the time, when people say uh, the word Messiah, they had all sorts of ideas about what the Messiah ought to do. And because Jesus had not yet finished his mission, 
It was to, they were to wait till the mission was completed before they would be telling everyone that he is the Messiah. So that people are not confused any longer. We're able to say he is the Messiah who has done the very things we're about to read of in verses 31 uh, down to verse 32. Now is not the time to not tell anyone. That was a unique time uh, for this little period of, in the life of Christ. Now... We're to tell everyone that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what we seek to do this week, to tell people the truth of who Jesus is. The identity of the Messiah is Jesus. He's the only one. He is the Messiah. Well, then in verse 31, we begin to see the mission of the Messiah. So once Peter uh, grasps the identity of Jesus. He sees that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice in verse 31, it says, he then began to teach them. So now they get who he is. At this point, Jesus begins to teach them about his mission. And in Mark's gospel, we read the words that Jesus speaks in verse 31 uh, uh, three times here and two other times uh, in Mark's gospel. Jesus hammers home to them what his mission is. So look at what he says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, just pause there for a moment, Son of Man, uh, that was the, really the favorite name that Jesus had for himself. He uses it 81 times in the Gospels, the Son of Man. That phrase comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter 7, and it speaks of the one who will come and establish God's kingdom and rule and reign forever. Jesus is that Son of Man. That's who he declares himself to be here. He is the Son of Man. But he's not a Son of Man establishing a kingdom in a way that anybody would expect. Look at what he says. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus suffered, didn't he? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, when he lived on earth... In his mission, he was a man who suffered. He suffered grief and he suffered um, sorrow and he suffered re uh, rejection by his own family and all the things, all the, the problems that we suffer, Jesus suffered. We've, we've heard that over this last week at prayer meeting and, and yesterday at the day of prayer, that Jesus is a, a, a man who understands our suffering. He suffered many things. And we read, he must and, and be rejected by the elders, the, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. So he was going to come, this son of man, this king, the one who is God's king, and he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders of the day. And that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. That was the mission of the Messiah. That is what Jesus came to do. He came to suffer. He came to be rejected, he came to die, and he came to rise from the dead. And as we read through uh, the New Testament, we, we read why he did those things. He came to die for our sins on the cross. He died in our place for our sins. And he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and ascended to sit at the Father's right hand, and that's where he reigns forever and ever. But in order to get to there, his mission was to die 
before he rises again. His mission was to suffer and his mission was to be rejected. He did not come on a, on a white horse conquering. He came as a baby in a manger. At the end of the passage, we'll read of his second coming when he does come conquering. But his mission here is to suffer and die for our sins. That's why he came. So that your sins could be paid for on the cross. So that your sins could be forgiven. So that we can have a relationship with our Father because the sin which separates us from him has been paid for. That was his mission. But it was a strange mission. Because when the people of the time thought of Messiah, they did not think of one. They did not want to follow one. They did not want to put their allegiance to one who was going to be humiliated by death on the cross. And so in verse 32, look at what Peter thinks of Jesus' plan as a Messiah. It says, so Jesus spoke plainly about this. That means when Jesus said what he was going to do, he made it absolutely clear. There's no messing about. There was no obscurity. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, do you see the arrogance of Peter here? Peter has just told Jesus, you're the Messiah, which means you are God's king, Jesus. Yes, I believe, Jesus, you've come from God. I believe, Jesus, that you are the one who has come to bring in God's kingdom, to save his people, to deliver us. You are that one. Yes, Jesus, I, I see it. I've seen all you've done. You are the Messiah. And then as soon as Jesus tells Peter the plan, Peter like pulls him aside. It says he took Jesus aside from the others and he says, now listen here, Messiah. <laughs> you, 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 I, I, I know you're the Messiah, but you know what? You've got this plan all wrong, Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus, I'll, I'll tell you what the plan should be. You've got it all wrong. Do you see the arrogance of what Peter's doing there? But don't we do the same? Many people today reject this very plan of salvation. What, you mean that I contribute nothing? That I have to humble myself and admit that I'm a sinner before God? That's the plan for salvation? That I have to, to put my trust in, in Jesus and, and I don't I don't contribute anything? Yes, that's the plan. But how many people say, no way? <laughs> no way. But we reject God's plans in all sorts of ways, don't we? We live in a world that at the moment rejects God's plan for marriage. A man and a woman? <laughs> Ridiculous. There's people in the churches that are saying that. They'll say, you're the Messiah, but they won't agree with what the Messiah's word says on those things and other things. But what about in our own individual lives? God has plans in our lives. But how often do we put our arm around Jesus and say, come here a minute, Jesus. I believe you're the Messiah, but you've got the plan for my life all wrong. This spouse you've given me, Jesus, this isn't the, the spouse I planned for. This hasn't turned out how I expected, we might say. These children, I had great plans for these children, Jesus. 
They were supposed to do all these amazing things. And look at how they've turned out. You've got the plan wrong. These burdens you've given me, Jesus, these aren't part of your plan. Surely not. I'm not supposed to be sick, Jesus. That's not part of the plan, surely. No. You've got this all wrong. Yes, you're the Messiah, but your plans are a way out. Can I just have a word, Jesus? Can I tell you what, what should happen? Do you see how we can be just like Peter is here? Now, just as a caveat, that's not to say that when hard times come, that we don't pray for God to help us, that we don't pray for God to deliver us. We read all through the Psalms of, of people crying out to God to deliver them and to help them. But what we don't read of is them rebuking God and saying, you've got this all wrong. The world can be wrong, but God is not wrong. Do you see the difference? And what Peter misses is is two really important truths. The first thing he misses is really what he's just claimed. He misses the fact that God is God. Jesus is the king. And that's important not to miss because If we recognize you are the Messiah, when the plans for our life seem to be completely not what we would want, we can remember that he is the one who is in complete control. He is the one who knows far more than we could ever understand and ever comprehend. He is the one that has a plan that doesn't just involve our life, but every life and everything And he's working everything together for his glory and the good of his people. Everything over all of history. I mean, in our lives, we we might know uh, just a small detail of what's going on, but we don't even know really what's going on in our lives for the most part, like God does. Let alone what's going on in the rest of the universe. Let alone what's going on over the rest of history. But God knows it all, and he's working all things out perfectly. Because he is God. And so we must remember, Jesus is king, and he's king in our lives. But wonderfully, he's the king who has suffered and has died, and who cares for us. So the first thing is, he's king, he knows all. And so we can trust him in his plans, when we don't feel they're great plans. But the second thing Peter misses, I think... It's the resurrection. Yes, Jesus was going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. But he says quite plainly, from verse 32, he, says, he said it plainly, that on the third day he's going to rise. So not only is Peter missing that Jesus is king, he's missing the fact that Jesus is going to rise from the dead and have victory over death. And that's something we must not miss either. For when the plans that come our way are difficult plans and hard plans, we must always remember that because Christ got up and walked out of the grave, whatever those plans are, they always will end well because the resurrection has happened. He is risen from the dead. And so we have hope. So we can trust God because he's king and we have hope because he's risen from the dead. You see? And when we face plans that we don't understand and plans that we're finding hard to deal with, 
Satan obscures us by obscures those two truths from our minds. He tries to make us forget that God is, is king and he's good and he's in control. And he wants us to forget that Jesus is risen and we have hope. Which is why in verse 33, Jesus very strongly turns, looks at Peter and his disciples and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says. He, he calls Peter Satan. It's very strong. And the reason it's very strong is because Peter's way of thinking here is from Satan. Because he's forgetting that Jesus is king. And he's forgetting that Jesus is going to have victory. And Peter, it says, Jesus says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And friends, isn't that really, when we rail against the plans of God, what we have in mind too, normally? We want to be comfortable. We want easy, an easy life. We want things to go well all the time. We have merely human concerns. We don't have the concerns of God. We don't have the concerns of his kingdom and his, his, his glory. We have in mind merely human concerns. So brothers and sisters, first of all, believe the mission of the Messiah. Believe that he died for our sins and that he's risen from the dead. Understand that. See clearly what he's done. And I think we try and make that plain every week, don't we, at church? But when you don't understand his plan in your life, trust him, he's the king. Remember there is hope, he's risen. But thirdly, and it kind of continues that, that theme somewhat, Jesus then goes on after the mission of the Messiah to show the call of the Messiah. So after rebuking Peter, he called in verse 34 the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's interesting, um, if you were going to give a sales pitch to follow Jesus, you wouldn't make this up, would you? Deny yourself. So say no to those desires that you have that are, are, are not according to what God would want. Say no to those things. And, and sometimes it means saying no to things that aren't necessarily bad. We have to sometimes say no to certain um, opportunities we might have or, or whatever it might be. We've got to deny ourselves and take up our cross. That means to die to die to ourselves and what we might desire and what we might want and take up our cross and follow Jesus, the one who died on the cross. We're not called to an easy life. We're not called uh, to, to a, a life of sunshine and roses and buttercups all the time. We're called to the way of the cross. It's not much of a sales pitch except... Look at verse 35. For, and here's why we do it. Here's why we take up the cross. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. If you lose your life for Jesus, and that can mean yes, physically, and for many Christians it does mean that, doesn't it? If you lose your life, if you give up your life to follow Jesus, you follow him at all costs, you'll actually save your life. You'll actually have eternal life. You'll have life with God in heaven forever. You won't face his wrath. You'll be with him. It's worth losing your life following Jesus because you will save your life. But the other way around is what we really find in verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What good is it if you were to gain everything? Rather than lose your life, you were to have the whole world, but you forfeit your soul. And what we have here is a mathematical equation. And the reason it's a mathematical equation is because this verse turns on the fact that there is a duration involved. A duration in terms of how long we can have the whole world for compared to how long we have the soul for. So you could, in theory, I suppose, well, you can't even actually gain the whole world, but imagine in a moment that you could gain the whole world. You spent your life gaining the whole world. If you did that, you've got to spend time gaining it. And so the maximum time you could have the whole world is very short, isn't it? Imagine you got to retire with the whole world. <laughs> okay? You've got it for 20 years. But if you forfeit your soul, your soul lasts forever. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Now, for some, none of us are going to gain the whole world. The thing is, you never will. I mean, isn't it interesting what a billionaire, the, like the mega billionaire is trying to do at the moment? They're trying to go to space. And we saw the other week with that submarine explosion, they're trying to go deep under the sea. Why? Because the world is never enough. You'll never gain the whole world. Anyway, it's an illusion. But what would the whole world be to you? What would you, what would you want if I could offer you anything in the world? If you could have anything, what would it be? And if you could gain that, it would not be worth it if you forfeited your soul. But if you lost your life following Jesus and you never gained any of those things, if you were rejected by your friends and family, if your school friends thought you were stupid and they laughed at you all the time, if your work colleagues thought you were ridiculous, if your family never speak to you again, even if you have to flee for your life, it is worth following Jesus, isn't it? Because we don't forfeit our soul, we gain eternal life. You see? Now, it's not easy. It's a cross. Jesus is not promising us here an easy life. He is promising us it is worth it always. It doesn't profit you anything to, to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. But here's the wonderful truth. If you lose your life to follow Jesus, you do gain the whole world. You gain the new one. Because doesn't Paul say in Romans 8, won't he graciously give us all things? <laughs> you will gain the whole world with Jesus in glory. And it's worth forsaking this world. But like last week in Galatians 6, where Paul says, the world is crucified to him and he is crucified to the world. It is always, always, always worth following Jesus, whatever the cost. And so he can call us 
to take up our cross because it's worth it in the end. And look at verse 38. This is speaking of the day when it definitely will be worth it. We will see that it is worth it. He says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you're going to forfeit your soul, if you're going to reject Jesus, when Jesus returns, and he will, as he came the first time, he will come the second, not in the same way, but with the same certainty. He will come as judge. And if you have rejected him, which is what it means here to be ashamed of him, if you said, no, I'm not going to follow Jesus because I don't want to give all this up, well, then he's going to be ashamed of you. He's going to reject you. You are going to suffer his wrath forever. But we know that if we are not ashamed of him, if we are not ashamed of the gospel, we will be with him forever in the new world where we will be blessed and happy with him forever. It's always worth heeding the call of the Messiah, isn't it? And so for those that are struggling with heeding that call because you're thinking, this is costing a lot. It's worth it. It's worth it, always. The missionary Jim Elliot, who was martyred in the jungle, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so, brothers and sisters, may we believe that he is the Messiah. May we believe that he has died for our sins and he's risen from the dead. And in that belief, may we heed his call and follow him. And so this week, can I encourage you to pray. To pray that many others in this area would come to see clearly, as Peter does, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's our prayer, isn't it? Not just this week, but always, that people would see that. And if anyone's here this evening, and all of a sudden you've read this, and your eyes have been opened, and you can see all of a sudden, oh, I see, he's the Messiah, he's died for me, then tell someone that you believe that. And have them pray with you. Ask God to forgive your sins, knowing that he does because Jesus has died for them. And begin to be his follower. Let me pray before we sing. Our Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Thank you that he has suffered many things and was rejected and he was killed and he rose from the dead. Help us not to forget these things. And help us to heed the call to follow Jesus, to obey your words, whatever the cost, until the day that you call us home or you return. And we thank you that you don't just call us 
without showing us that it is worth it, but that you've shown us that it always is worth it. We thank you that you will graciously give us all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't we um, stand together and sing our final uh, song, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. It's a song of commitment to the words that we have read this evening. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow you. Let's stand and sing together.
Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.